Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Chillin' in the State House, the most sleep-deprived podcast in the state of Kansas. I am Andrew Ball, one half of the Capitol Journal's state government and politics team. I'm joined by my better half, as always, Jason Tidd. Jason, how are you hanging in there, man? I'm awake, which is, uh, I don't know if that's an accomplishment or not, but after this week, it kind of feels like it is. Well, we'll, we'll get in a, in a couple minutes into why we are sleep-deprived. Hint, it involves the Kansas legislature after dark. And no, that is not an innuendo. Uh, but before we go there, we are joined by our good friend. I don't think you're, we even can call you a, a, a guest at this point because you're just kind of a regular co-host. But, well, uh, I, I, yes, I'm a, I consider myself a friend of the podcast. The, um, the, the dulcet tones you hear, John Hanna, Associated Press. Hey, thank you, Andrew, for inviting me again. Or did I invite myself? <laughs> Either way, we're happy you're here. And um, we're really happy you're here because it was a long week, uh, maybe the busiest week of the year, although they might find a way to top that next week. Jason, in just a, maybe I'll briefly summarize what the last seven or five days have been like. The last seven or five days has been the culmination of procrastination during the rest of the legislative session, plus lengthy floor debates over mundane and important matters of policy and uh pushing things late into the night to finally pass bills we say late into the night last wednesday it was uh well i guess it was really early into thursday morning about 1 30 a.m a little after i think when they finally gaveled out which is uh, a marathon session but not uncommon for the for the dying days and and for all that trouble, um, well maybe, maybe a little bit of context. So there are various, in my opinion, somewhat arbitrary deadlines throughout the legislative session. So we have we are in, in late March and maybe one of the biggest ones that's what's called Drop Dead Day. Um, this year that was March 23rd or the morning of March 24th if you're the Kansas Senate. And that is the last day for bills to make it out of the legislature with one big ol' asterisk, except for all the ones that don't and uh, uh, are taken up in the next couple weeks. Yes, it's it's the, the time they have to get out of the second house after passing the House of Origin. And then the coming week, there are supposed to be conference committees, motions and to concur or not concur to accept or not accept the other chamber's amendments and the end of uh, the end of next week we're doing this on a friday so we're talking friday april 1st april fool's day uh that although something tells me it might be april 2nd um that most of the budget gets wrapped up and most everything is supposed to be done but of course, there is a wrap-up period where uh, the la- some of the last big things get completed. Well, Jason, what, we could maybe just like run down all the outstanding issues that folks, that le- legislators, will have to deal with over the next couple of weeks. John mentioned the budget; that's a big one. Uh, what what else do we all have on the agenda? Well, the governor's priority of the food sales tax cut. There's medical marijuana. There's uh, 
uh, sports betting. There uh, also a, a good number of election bills that need to be dealt with, including a really big one that would uh, restrict ballot drop boxes and make some pretty big changes to voting by mail. Uh, there are some COVID bills that we've talked yeah, about. The, the Senate has four COVID bills rewriting public health laws for this pandemic and all future ones that the House may or may not decide to take up. Uh, legislative redistricting, and John, this is your moment. You you were the one who really wanted to talk about this. <laughs> yes, and- uh, Mapzilla, we, they have to finish re- legislative redistricting. Uh, they might actually have an argument over state board of education districts. That is the last piece. And, of course, the House map, they had basically a bipartisan kumbaya love fest, except for one lawmaker, Republican lawmaker, who gets drawn into the dist- into a district in western Kansas with another rep Tate- representative Tatum Lee, um, and she was not happy. She called Republican leaders dictators, uh, among other things, in an yes. interview with reporters. And said that uh, she was targeted because she always stands for liberty for Kansas, and if liberty is offensive to some, well, we will just deal with that at the polls, she said. So that was an interesting comment, but otherwise in the House it was, you know, everybody got up and, and gave such nice speeches about how wonderful the process is that you probably would vomit from all the sweetness. <laughs> so there's that. There's vomiting, <laughs> um, which there are, there are a whole host of other tax issues that uh, in addition to uh, the food sales tax – there's tax relief for folks impacted by natural disasters and wildfires that everyone really probably should have agreed to one of the first couple of weeks of session, and it's just sat out there. Um, the Senate has passed a bill with five or six separate tax provisions in it, I think, that needs to be addressed. Um, well, let's do it this way. I'm going to go to both of you guys and have you pick what you think is the, going to be the biggest most interesting debate that we're going to be having uh, in over the next seven days, give or take. And Jason, I'm going to start with you. I'll go with COVID public health rewrites of longstanding laws. Uh, The Senate passed four bills. Uh, We don't know if the House will take them up or how they will approach the issue. None of the four bills passed with veto-proof majorities in the Senate. Uh, the governor told reporters that while she is generally on board with looking at laws and finding ways to write better laws, she does not think this is a case of them making a better law. And We're talking uh, removing the KDHE secretary's power to prevent the spread of infectious diseases, taking away the power of government officials to issue mask mandates, uh, making it so that way anybody with a philosophical objection to a vaccine can opt their children out of any childhood vaccine. Uh, If a government wants to issue a gathering size restriction for businesses such as a bar can only be at 75% during a pandemic 
Uh, first, that order can only stand for 30 days. Second, uh, the business would be able to get compensation for that level of an order. And lawsuits would have to move fifth swiftly through the courts and if you win your lawsuit you also get paid uh schools could not do covid vaccine passports which i interpret it as uh, a school official could not inquire about your covid vaccination status and that is intended to prevent discrimination and segregation based on vaccination status so if your child is not vaccinated, they would not be required to sit in a separate part of the classroom or excluded from playing on, say, a football team. Well, and, and the interesting dynamic here, and I think this is leading into the Mac Daddy of them all, which we've talked about, and that's the, the bill pertaining to uh, alternate COVID treatments. Um, yes, so... Uh, the ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine bill oh it's back it, it and this time it passed uh instead of getting kicked back to committee uh the one that originally made it out of committee in an apparent uh trade for the flip-flop redistricting veto override vote from senator mark stefan uh this bill promotes off-label prescriptions for drugs that are approved for other uses for FDA approved uses, uh, but a doctor could prescribe them for COVID-19 prevention or treatment. Uh, even if you don't have, even if you haven't been diagnosed with COVID, uh, the pharmacist would be forced to fill that prescription. Uh, and I, it, the pharmacist could use their professional judgment if, say, the dosage was too high. But if the only reason they had to deny it was because it's for COVID and that the vast majority of medical evidence suggests that they it is not effective at treating COVID, the pharmacist would still be compelled to fill that prescription. Well, and, and uh, Senator Cindy Holsher, uh, who's from Johnson County, a Democrat from Johnson County, raised an interesting point that probably uh, opponents of that bill will repeat more, which is uh, her argument was, you know, a doctor could prescribe uh, a regimen known as in in uh, amongst abortion, uh, act, anti-abortion and uh, uh, abortion rights activists as the me. MIFO and MISO, uh, two drugs that end pregnancies, her argument was a doctor could prescribe that, say it's for COVID, if asked, and if the dosage is correct, then the pharmacist would have to fill it, which would get around a, a conscience law that the, the state enacted a number of years ago or, or tried to at so many uh, abortion-related laws have been in and out of the courts. It's kind of hard to track which ones are in effect now and which ones aren't. But anyway, her point, she was raising the specter of this, of course, to appeal to conservative Republicans 
who oppose abortion to kind of get try to peel them off didn't didn't work here but the argument sounded more like it was for the conservatives in the house the argument might have worked better if it weren't coming around midnight yes jason's uh, not bitter but nothing yeah, but, sounds good as an argument at midnight except the argument to end debate and yes. go to sleep uh but but the bill uh while it specifically promotes ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, the only drugs that it does not cover are controlled substances. So you couldn't be running a pill mill with uh, oxycodone under this bill, but a doctor could prescribe any other non-controlled drug, presumably milfapristone and other abortion medications, well, that that was the argument. What what was interesting uh, in in that bill, I think, was that it was uh, it was tied to that broader uh, religious exemption, and now it's it's um, it's the same language that they did for workers who wanted to get out of a COVID vaccine mandate, but it now applies to parents and their children and schools enrolling in schools and daycare. It applies to everything, measles, mumps, polio, rubella, whooping cough, um, (laughs) which if you have, if you have a typo, it becomes whopping cough. Um, I I have a feeling this happened to you. Yes. Um, (laughs) Well, and and I I think the second part of the bill gets at how aggressive it really is and and yeah, it really is a change in about 40 plus years of immunization policy in Kansas. And the, the chair of the Senate Health Committee, Richard Hildebrand, who's a Republican from Baxter Springs, which is way down in the southeast corner, was talking about, well, not everybody gets their children vaccinated. And, and yes, that's actually been a big concern for public health officials, that they'd like those vaccination rates to be higher. And because they, they fear that those diseases that have been all but eradicated in schools, measles, for example, we've seen some localized outbreaks of measles here in recent years. And um, yeah, it's not only is it a religious belief, but it, it, it covers a deeply held philosophical belief, theistic or non-theistic, or really any kind of philosophy, philosophical belief that is held so strongly that it's like a religion. So one interesting piece, to me at least, of the lawmaking process is how this provision is in two of the four COVID bills that passed. And part of that is because one came from the Public Health Committee, one came from the Judiciary Committee. Uh, So I don't know how much overlap there was between the writings of the bills. There's definitely a couple senators who will sit on both committees. Molly Baumgartner, uh, Mike, Mike Thompson. Thompson is on both. Yeah, so, both conservatives. And, and at least publicly, they never raise concerns about two different pieces of legislation having essentially the same exact piece. And if they passed both, well, what would happen? Well, Jason, there is this concept in the Kansas legislature called the trailer bill. And that is a bill that contains nothing but technical language about section numbers and commas and periods. And it follows that's when they have to reconcile two bills that are almost exactly the same, but not quite. And they both pass. On the topic of trailer bills, 
Senator Kelly Warren, who led one of these bills uh, in caucus, called it a trailer bill to last year's uh, emergency management rebate. Well, it's it's obviously a little more than a technical cleanup, um, but it does. The reason she probably said that is it adopts the language for workers, for parents of school-aged children. And so the argument there is we've already done this. We've already adopted this language. Everybody's seen it. We're now just applying it over here. And, of course, uh, you got pushback on that, even from some Republicans. Kristen O'Shea, who is the mother of a young child, uh, Leland, who was on the floor occasionally, um, said that we didn't talk about this in the context of childhood vaccinations and do we really want to go back to the days before those vaccinations were widespread the pro the the issue here is how many parents would if that exemption applied how many parents how many more parents would not get their kids vaccinated i mean i but the core assumption though this is past the senate and i think this is when things start to get interesting what will happen with the bill when it goes across the hall to the House? And is this a big enough issue for folks on the Senate side that they will play hardball in trying to get the House to take action on these issues in one form or another? Well, and it, it depends on how much – it depends, frankly, on how much the Senate president, Ty Masterson, first – wants that language and second is getting pressure from fellow conservatives to fight for it those are the pretty two key issues um it's possible that there could be enough support amongst conservatives in the house that it could pass it it's hard to see it passing with a two-thirds majority but when when you get down to the last week this period that the legislature is going to be entering and then the wrap-up and this is one of the tough things to explain as a journalist everything becomes related to everything else and so that you know we, we you we referenced the the deal no deal argument with the redistricting change from mark stefan and the the ivermectin bill um that whole thing was a good example a small limited example of how this works at the end of a legislative session at the end of a legislative session you have the budget over here and a bunch of spending priorities and money people want and you have tax cuts over here that people want and then you have all this policy and you've got eight or ten different things in the air and people are are pushing and leveraging and pushing and so it's very possible that this ivermectin proposal and this vaccination proposal could suddenly become the leverage to get somebody's vote in the Senate for something the House wants. Thinking of things that chambers want, how do medical marijuana and sports betting stand going <laughs> nice, into this Nice week? segue. Well, I was going to pick that as, as my two issues to watch. Not They might not be the biggest debates, but I think... The things that we get the most interest from readers about, um, they probably are in the top three or top five of things, particularly younger folks who, yes, there are younger folks who read our stories uh, out there want. And, you know, Jason, to, 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 to kind of quickly walk through those, 
medical marijuana passed the House last year. It has languished for most of the session in the Senate, but a Senate version of the bill was introduced a couple weeks back, had a hearing, uh, and there's now maybe some chance. To John's point, this seems like a potential bargaining chip because it's something that the House has been more invested in than the Senate. Medical marijuana is such an interesting issue to me um, because what I've read and talked to folks who experience medical marijuana in another state is there's always this issue of, is it really medical marijuana or is it, I'll just go find a doctor who will write me a script and I'll have the little cards you need for it to be legal. I mean, kind of like ivermectin could become. (laughs) uh, And, and, you know, so the question is, are, is a state just better off in time in terms of trying to control it and regulate it? Um, just to go recreational because essentially, you know, um, is it going to be a bunch of people like, I'm, I mean, I could sit back and say, well, I feel a little glaucoma coming on. I know Dr. Smith over there uh, can help me get a card and I can smoke all the pot I want. Well, the, the first thing, under assuming bill, I can afford it, there's now a black market apparently in some places to avoid the taxes and to get marijuana more cheaply. But well, and to your point, John, the bill is this was very big for most Republicans. They wanted it written pretty narrowly, so only a certain list of conditions can get you a card, and you can't you can't smoke it. It's uh, it's limited to topical or edible products. John is, uh, I guess, dismayed by this Look, development. But... You you read that book about the history of prohibition in Kansas, right? Yes. And when there was prohibition in Kansas, pharmacies became notorious before they did what was called the bone dry law, which was they got rid of the medical use exception for liquor. Pharmacies in Kansas were notorious for dispensing liquor for medicinal purposes. And I, I, I would be interested to talk with legislators some more about how they're going to avoid that problem if they, they want. I mean, I, I guess there are places where they've discussed, for example, you, you can't have it in a form that could be smoked. I yeah. think that was something that they they tried in Ohio. Well, and that's maybe. and that's how our bill is written. But, yeah. But what's worth pointing out, um, and I'll try and be quick. In states that have started that way, it always ends. You end up legalizing the smokable form. You end up doing away with restrictions and expanding the program because that's what people want, and and that's what other states are doing. And frankly, you make more tax revenue when you do it that way. Um, it's and, just it's just kind of hard to. Uh, right now we're. Kansas is culturally it just uh, it's it would be interesting to see full-blown recreational marijuana in Kansas it does not fit with the rest of the country's image of our great state well chilling in the state house may be chill but we're not that chill um we could be though we're, we're still an agricultural state where you exterminate weeds not smoke them <laughs> <laughs> well uh, you would know more about that uh, than I would, Jason, having grown up on a farm. But wasn't there? Isn't there a thing called Kansas ditchweed? I assume so. Yes. I mean, growing up in my part of the state, sunflowers were actually a weed. Well, that's distressing. That's blasphemy, right there. Um, 
Well, and and to address the other part real quick on on sports betting, uh, this is something that for years has been a debate, and it really has been a debate between the Senate and the House, who have been very entrenched in their own positions. It comes down to how much power do you give the casinos? How, how much, widespread the betting places you can take a bet are? And and how much money that the state gets as a cut versus the casinos? Because the thing with sports betting, as opposed to, say, blackjack, most of the bets are returned to the betters uh, in more a higher rate than casino gaming or slots. Well, the other, the other issue is how much do the sports leagues get? That's what's that is kind of the thing that's really interesting to me. For years, the professional sports leagues at least had a public position of not really favoring this kind of betting. And, uh, you know, Pete Rose, for example, was banned from baseball because of, of uh, betting allegations. And, you know, there's kind of that thing oh, you can't have betting, it'll influence the outcome of games. And um, and then when it was clear that this was going to be something every state could do, well, then the professional leagues were interested in getting a cut and critics would argue the lion's share. The, interest, the other interesting thing is in terms of what this would make the state, it's really not very much. No, it's not. But, but it would make us something. And Missouri is also looking very seriously at legalizing this. It passed their house. And the thought is, whoever on, on either side of the, the Kansas-Missouri border does it first will be at a, an advantage because, you know, well, and, it, and again, it's not so, it it's not necessarily so much what the state will get, but if you, for example, if you, it, let's say you limit it to casinos and Kansas casinos can do it and Missouri casinos can't, then people who want to bet go over to the Kansas casinos and they get in the habit of going into the Kansas casinos to do the sports book. Well, and you don't even need to, to go into casinos anymore because part of the, the bill, uh, yeah. uh, the new, the, the kind of the compromise version of the bill that will probably eventually wind up in conference committee. The casinos can partner with apps, so you don't even need Yeah, because if uh, we're worried about gambling addiction, that will make it ever so much better. <laughs> as, my, as, my anti, as my gambling addiction counter uh, counseling friends would say. I'm glad uh, sassy John Hanna showed up today. So the revenue piece, it, it's not so much that... Uh, the industry is small, and that's why Kansas wouldn't make much money out of it. It's that the industry is big. It's just the sliver of the pie going to the state government, and its taxpayers would actually be pretty small. Right, and 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 as you pointed out, the difference between this and other forms of gambling is that the to keep this going, um, that most of the wager is returned to the pool of betters. Um, as opposed to uh, a, a casino game where the percentage is lower, or frankly, the one with the worst is probably a lottery, the state lottery. Um, but you know, like you go, you go to uh, Las Vegas, and they talk about loose slots that return. I think sometimes it's like 90, 92, 95 percent. It's a pretty high percentage, not this high. Uh, but the percentage drops a little bit with, I mean, roulette is, I, you know, I like roulette, but it's like supposedly 
the game where the odds are stacked against you because you can bet on so many spaces and there's an extra space on the wheel. Um, well, much like the Kansas legislature in some ways. Or as to to quote uh, Tina Turner in one of the Mad Max movies, spin the make a deal, break a deal, spin the wheel. All right, John. Well, I'm going to have you spin the wheel. What is the debate that you're going to be tracking the most or you think will be the most consequential in the next uh, few days? Well, the one I I think that could turn out to be pretty fascinating is going to be about education Um, because there's this discussion of the so-called Parents' Bill of Rights, uh, transparency for requiring schools to post lesson plans, online so parents can see them, uh, making it easier for parents to object to materials in the classroom and in libraries. Uh, That is sort of where legislators who are worried about the issue of critical race theory, that is sort of where they've gone uh, in terms of that. There's also a discussion of what's known as open enrollment, where you would have the right as a parent to enroll your kid in any public school, assuming that that you yourself could transport them there. There are issues about school choice and expanding this program of uh, private school scholarships to move kids and troubled kids, at-risk kids in or in failing schools into public schools. And it all comes at a time when lawmakers are going to, under the school funding law they enacted in 2019, put more money into public schools. And so there's a lot going on about education. And uh, of course, what we saw in Virginia at the end of 2021 was a Republican governor getting elected after raising education is a pretty key issue and parental control of education is a pretty key issue. So those are the one, those are some of the ones I'm watching. I'm always fascinated by how the budget and the tax, how budgets and tax cuts come together. Uh, but that probably won't be settled completely until the wrap up session. Well, and, and to go back to education, um, I, I agree. I think it'll be really interesting Worth noting, the Parents' Bill of Rights has only passed the Senate. Mm-hmm. It does not have a veto-proof majority. Open enrollment bills, uh, slightly different forms, but they passed both the Senate and the House. Again, no veto-proof majority. And it gets at an interesting question, I think, and in, in both these bills raise it kind of in, in more or less. And, that's, um, and we saw it last year with the school choice debate. For many legislators, Republicans from like more rural areas, the idea of open enrollment or school choice, or even in some extent the nebulous threat of critical race theory, is kind of an alien concept because, you know, where are you going to transfer when you get out to Rooks County? You were kind of stuck with what you have. There are no private schools. There really are no tangible concerns about curriculum. You know, it, it presents kind of an interesting set of issues for them in comparison to Republicans from Johnson County or the Wichita area where these are much more live well, issue and popped up in school board races. I, I would make a couple of points. The debate over critical race theory is really a debate about, or really appears to be a debate about what 
do we talk about when we talk about the origins and the history of the United States? Which, which, what narrative do we say? How exceptional is the United States? How good is the United States? And there has been a strain throughout American history of the United States as uh, the exceptional nation, the indispensable nation, the uh, the the narrative of God's chosen people, almost literally, uh, which is interesting because um, every great power in the world has had a narrative that says they were God's chosen people. Um, but so it's about something deeper. It's about who do we want to believe we are and how do we pass that belief on to our children? And do we want to present ourselves as a nation that is, has been fundamentally flawed, but is, and the supporters of critical race theory will say, we have to deal with our fundamental deep systemic flaws so that the United States can become a better nation or do we want to tell that exceptionalist version so that young citizens have an exalted view of the United States and they carry that forward into the world in theory to do good things? So it's really kind of an argument over what is the best way when you teach history to create an attitude that leads to good things in the world? Um, so that that is out there. Um, and so I, the point is that I don't know that it matters if you're in a rural area that your school is not teaching critical race theory. You're happy about that, but maybe you don't want anybody else in Kansas to do it. And so that, that I think, is there. And also, look, if you're a parent and you've had a kid in public school or have a kid in public schools, it is never 100% smooth for you. And it's probably that way with a private school as well. You always have some, at least one or two issues throughout the course of your kid's career, a teacher, a principal, you know, your kid struggles in math, whatever. There's always, I mean, parents being parents, kids being kids, teachers being teachers. We're all human. So there's going to be points of friction. And, you know, those tend to be what get rem get remembered. And so, you know, you can look at a bill that doesn't seem to apply to your school or your school district now, and you can imagine how it might. And that's what Republicans are who are pushing these are appealing to the frustration of parents and and the critics of these say look you you already can go online and find out what lessons the lesson plans are you have opportunities to call the school and talk to the teacher you go there are parent teacher conferences that's what those are for and every every school has what you know people various people see as the difficult parents the parents who get in there and are always talking to the teachers and raising questions and doing stuff so 
I say this as a former uh, difficult parent. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, <laughs> the traits that maybe made you a difficult parent are what make you a good reporter. So, well, and it's it look the the issue the the issue is part of the issue here, and this is an issue you can't solve for. Parents will either be engaged or they won't. And you can't, you can't make parents be engaged if they don't want to. I suspect if a parent really, really wants to be engaged, you can't stop them. Um, the issue is what systems are in place to deal with complaints and, and questions. So, and that's what this whole debate is about. Well, parents may or may not be engaged with their child's education but the three of us will be engaged with the Kansas legislature in excruciating fashion over the next few weeks. And oh, it's never excruciating. Well, and I was it's always say, fascinating. I was going to say we will love every second of it. And yeah. I'm glad that you were engaged with this podcast for yes. this. Yes. Yes. No, just be glad that this was not as long as the legislature talked. Yes, indeed. And, and we do have our own very critical podcast theory, right? <laughs> <laughs> no comment i don't want angry emails um you can find all of our state house coverage this week and the weeks to come at cjonline.com or on twitter at cjonline. jason where can they find you talking about all things kansas legislature and kansas state basketball twitter I'm at jason underscore tid that's t-i-d-d go cats i'm the new coach looks like he's going to make for a exciting season next year. I am found at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L, and uh, I will be sad about my beloved Wisconsin Badgers going out of the NCAA tournament. At least you made it. <laughs> True. John, if they want to find your work at the Associated Press, how can they do that? APnews.com backslash uh, <laughs> Kansas. Um, and I'm at Twitter at at APJD Hannah, Rock Chalk, my Jayhawks. I do look forward to the K-State Wildcats in basketball, possibly finishing second or third behind the Jayhawks in the Big 12. Although... Am I going to have yeah. to separate you two? <laughs> well, no, he can He can give me about football here in a second. Well, as of the day that we are recording this, KU plays tonight. We'll see if they'll still be in the tournament by the time you're listening to this podcast. Yes, indeed. Well, and, and Gonzaga thought it was going pretty far, and it got upended, right? And so did Baylor, another number one seed. It ruined my bracket. This but is... the sports betting bill could change <laughs> that for you. <laughs> great, great transition. <laughs> if you want to listen to us yucking it up on past episodes of Children in the State House, and by God, having listened to this, you, I'm sure, want to. We are anywhere fine podcasts are found. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and at cjonline.com. We post all our new episodes there. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure as always. Let's get some sleep, rest up, and maybe we'll do this again next week. All right. All right.